Um, so we are looking at this last section of Mark uh, <clears throat> before we uh, go on into Romans. Um, would somebody read Mark chapter 9, verses uh, 9 to 13? <clears throat> now after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. He went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. When they had heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. After that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. They went away and reported it to the others, but they did not believe them either. Okay. You, you meant Mark 16, right? What did I say? Mark 16, verses 9. <laughs> what she was reading, wasn't it? <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, I'm liable to say most anything. So Mark 16, 9 to 13 is what I was read, and that's what I meant. Yeah. And you always have to take what I mean, not what I say. Not be much correlation. That's what we do. That's right. So Jesus has been raised, but you know, his resurrection in and of itself would have probably just been kind of an unexplained mystery. If he hadn't appeared. You know, the tomb's empty. Where'd he go? What happened? So you really need the appearances as kind of a correlate to the empty tomb to have really good evidence for Jesus' resurrection. And uh, so, who's the first one Jesus appeared to? Would that have been how you would have written the story if you had been inventing it? think I would have written that I first appeared to a uh, formerly demon-possessed woman, especially in that culture when women were probably looked down on more, and a woman who's been possessed by seven demons might not be thought of as such a credible witness, but the Lord often chooses the least likely for various uh, privileges and functions, and so he appears to her, she reports to those who'd been with him. Uh, but what did they think when she told them she'd seen him? They didn't believe it. They didn't believe it. And then he appears to two who are walking on their way to the country. I bet this is talking about the appearance in Luke 24 to the two on the road to Emmaus. Who were those two? Yes, that's exactly right. We know that one of them is Cleopas. That's uh, Luke 24, 18. We don't know who the other one was. And I've heard, probably, probably said this myself somewhere along the line, that he appeared to the two men on the road to Emmaus. We don't really know that either. It may have been Cleopas and Mrs. Cleopas for all we know. Um, but there were, there were two individuals at least uh, and remember how at first they don't even realize it's him and they're actually talking to him about what's happened to him without realizing it's him and then when they sit there eating a meal and, and then it dawns on them and suddenly Jesus disappears and they, they go and tell the others and what's the reaction to these two, the report of these two? They didn't believe it. 
That seems like a consistent theme. Not believing the eyewitness reports. What do you think about that? Why wouldn't they have believed it? It never happened before. Not uh, an everyday of the week occurrence, so that's a good reason. Well, other than seeing what Jesus went through. They saw him crucified. I mean, and, and beaten, and, and there's no way you can... He lived through the beating, which is surprising enough. And then to be crucified, there's no way he could have even possibly raised from the dead. Okay, so if they were eyewitnesses of the crucifixion, then, you know, he's dead to them. I wonder also if this isn't too good to be true. Do you ever kind of steel yourself against uh, something that that is a favorable report, but you're afraid you're going to get let down, so you don't let yourself believe it? I've wondered if that could be a factor in this as well. I think it's helpful to us that they don't believe it. Why would I say that? It makes the whole account more credible. Yes. If they had been ready to believe at the drop of a hat, you might think they were just wanting to believe something like this, and that their desire to believe it was part of the reason that they did. But the fact that they resisted believing it, even after some eyewitness testimony, is an indication they're pretty skeptical. It's going to take some pretty, you know, concrete proof for these guys. Um... On the other hand, it is a shame that they don't believe it. Jesus had told them over and over again that's what's what's going to happen. So uh, they really should have been anticipating it, though obviously they were not. Comments and questions through verse 13. All right, 14 to 20. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will pick up serpents, and if they drink any deadly poison it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. Okay. So he finally appears to the eleven themselves, and what does he say to them? Shame on you. Yeah, that's exactly right. Shame on you for your hardness of heart and not believing the eyewitness report. Uh, They really should have believed. And, uh, of course, now they will. They see him themselves. uh, And Jesus gives them a special mission. What does he tell them to go and do? Preach the gospel. 
To whom? To everyone. Jesus wants the message to be spread to everyone. These are the ones who are going to take the lead in doing that. That's why Jesus had chosen them in the first place, and this is going to be their mission. Jesus really wants this gospel message to get out. He wants it, everybody to hear it. While this is not spoken directly to us, it clearly indicates Jesus' will that all people hear this message. If we are sympathetic with the will of God, if we are praying that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we will do everything we can to get this message spread to everybody. We should not be content at all until we know that everybody has heard the message. And you certainly see that in the in the 11. Man, they preach, and they spread the message, and their followers preach and spread the message, and so forth. And you see those early Christians having such a zeal to get Christ declared everywhere. And, and that, that really needs to inspire us with the same sense of mission that they have. Comments and thoughts about that? It's kind of interesting to me that you have Christ appears to Mary, she reports it, and then there's belief or unbelief, in this case unbelief. He appears again, they report it to others, there's belief and unbelief. Finally he appears to the eleven, they believe this time, and he tells them to go report the report it to others. In yes. a sense, so you've got that same theme over over and over again. Uh huh. Hearing, reporting, believing. Yep. Good point. Other thoughts? Look at what he tells them to preach. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. That's a brief summary. But he's outlining the conditions that they preach for salvation. And, you know, people do all kinds of things with passages like this. But I ask, I'd like to ask the question. In this passage... Does being saved come before or after being baptized? I asked that of a man one time. We were studying this passage. And I believe he was an honest person and a, and a good young man, relatively young, 20, 20s probably. And I asked him the question, in this passage, does salvation come before or after baptism? He said, it comes before baptism. I said, would you read it again? He read it out loud again. I said, now this passage is being saved come before or after baptism. He says, it comes before baptism. I said, would you read it again? On the fifth time, he said, oh, it comes after baptism. <laughs> he said, well, I, was, I, I, I read he was believed. I knew you were saved when you believed. I didn't really see what it said. It's amazing how our preconceived opinions change what we see. I really don't think he was trying to be dishonest. I think he just didn't see what it was saying because he already jumped to the conclusion he was believed is saved, 
and then he can be baptized. That's what most people teach. That's not what God says. It says, he who believes and is baptized, shall be saved. It takes both. And those who preach salvation without belief are wrong. Those who preach salvation without baptism are wrong. Now, some people come back and say, but, but it doesn't say he who doesn't believe and isn't baptized will be condemned. Why doesn't it say that? You don't believe it, and we're baptized. If you don't believe, you won't be saved, whether you're baptized or not. You know, it only takes not believing to condemn you. But which are we wanting? Are we wanting to find out how to be condemned or how to be saved? You know, if our concern is how to be saved, then that's the part we really ought to uh, focus on accomplishing. But if we want to be condemned, just don't believe. That'll do it. Uh, So, I think this is a very powerful text to refute the common notion that salvation comes without baptism or before baptism. That is not true. Well, this wasn't what they were preaching, though, specifically. I mean, they were told to preach the gospel. And yet, he then adds these words on, and it's, it's almost as if, maybe, well, wow, where did that come from? Because, you know, where in the gospel, where does that fit in the gospel? But obviously, it was an integral part of the gospel. Absolutely. Because the gospel demands things from us. We preach Jesus, the Son of God, raised from the dead, not to satisfy men's intellectual curiosity, but so that they will believe in Jesus. And we preach Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, not so we can look at that as sort of a curiosity, now we know he died, was buried, and was raised, but so that we will join him in his death as we die to sin, and in his burial as we are buried in baptism, and in his resurrection as we rise to walk a new life. So if you really preach the gospel as, as something more than just an intellectual exercise, then it demands this response of us. Other thoughts? In Galatians, Paul tells us we're baptized into Christ, and then down in chapter 4, then he says, and because you are sons of God, he has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts. So I think that 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 helps me as far as thinking about being saved. Absolutely. Yeah. if, If you're baptized into Christ, if you haven't been baptized, you haven't come into Christ. And the Spirit comes into your heart as a result of that. That's exactly right. The Bible's very clear about that. Um, and, and I might suggest this. You know, one of the things that I think uh, bothers us sometimes is that it seems not quite right to us that God would have given baptism a role like this. Now, I don't know, I think we sometimes have some resistance to that. But but a couple of things that help me on that. One is, it is very impressive to me the times when the scriptures put baptism in a very key place, like right here. When he's giving them the basic mission, or you can go to Matthew 28 and he does the same thing. 
you know, to put baptism in the Great Commission in these few words is telling me this is important for Ephesians 4, where you have the seven ones, you know, and he says that, that uh, oh, how does he start that? I've forgotten now. I'll just go to it. Um, yeah, uh, there's one body, that's the way it is. There's one body and one spirit, even as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That's seven ones. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. Now would you have ever imagined baptism to be in that context? Yes, one God, one Lord, one spirit. That's key. Yes, one faith. Yes, one hope. Yes, even one body. But what's baptism doing in an august company like that? Well, clearly, that's a really significant element. And Paul views it that way. The other thing, and I've done this several times with you, but he's just thinking about the central place that God chose for water to have that God put the water of the flood as the dividing line between the old world of slavery and the new world that was cleansed. The old world of corruption, the new world that was cleansed. God put the water of the Red Sea between the old world of slavery in Egypt and the new world of freedom in the wilderness. That God put the water of the Jordan River between Naaman's leprosy and his being cleansed. That, that God put the water of the tank of Siloam between that man's blindness and his vision in John 6. And that God puts water between our being guilty of sin and our being forgiven and saved. God has used water over and over again as a dividing line. And so it's not, once you see him doing that, it's not a big surprise. It's not that water has inherent saving properties. I mean, God could have used other things for Naaman to be cleansed, but he didn't. God cleansed him. It wasn't the water of the Jordan River that had some sort of magical property. Or the water of the tank of Siloam that had magical properties to heal the blind man. But God did choose water as the dividing line in all of those areas. And I think that that also helps me just see this fits kind of the pattern of what God does. Comments and thoughts? is good at water, right, Tasha? <laughs> we just finished that. Oh, cool. <clears throat> now we're God is good at life. Yeah. Anything else? Why is there such an opposition to this teaching of Jesus? Well, I don't know all the reasons for that. Um... Perhaps historically a backlash against Catholicism saying that it's baptism only, no belief is necessary, and you know, baptism in the way they talk about it is great thing an infant. Yeah. And so Martin Luther and John Calvin and some of them went more to the opposite extreme. They saw baptism as a work, and they came to the conclusion we're saved by faith only and we're not saved by works and misdefining baptism as a work and misunderstanding works that sort of became the Protestant theology uh, I think that's probably historically a part of that and once they get that ingrained then that's hard to come out of 
have to wonder too if it's not simpler. People want to go through the pain of being baptized or whatever, especially a lot of the Baptists I've talked to. It's you do this once. You don't have to be baptized. It's helpful, but you don't have to be baptized. And you're saved forever. You don't have to do anything. You can go do whatever you want. I just can't help but feel maybe it's the simple simplicity of it. Just you just gotta believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and you're good. And it's just easier than having to go through the baptism and live faithfully. Thing after just a pain. So just kind of make it simple. Good. good. Now he says these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will pick up serpents. If they drink any deadly poison it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Those signs would sort of be the credentials that they would carry with them as proof that they were speaking the revelation from God. He doesn't send them out to preach the gospel without giving them the proof they need that it is the message from God that they're preaching. After all, couldn't anybody come along and say, I've got a message from God? And you're not supposed to just gullibly swallow that. You need some kind of proof. Here's the signs. And in verses 19 and 20, after Jesus went back up to heaven, they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. That's exactly what God did. God confirmed their message by the signs that followed them. And so we see in the book of Acts, for example, the fulfillment of this passage. The signs accompanying the believers and confirming the message. When you get a message from God and it's confirmed, then it stands. It doesn't have to have confirmation in every generation. There were the miracles of the plagues and the Red Sea and on Mount Sinai. But it wasn't in every generation that there were more signs confirming the law of Moses as the revelation from God. And by the same token, in one generation, we had these signs that proved the message the apostles preached. We would not expect the signs to recur in every generation. We had one period in which Jesus was raised and was seen by witnesses. We don't, we don't expect him to reappear in our generation. We rely on the confirmed evidence of eyewitness testimony. And so by the same token, God fulfilled this passage, confirming the word by these signs. We should not expect a re-employment of signs in every generation to confirm the already confirmed word. So these are the signs that prove the message. Comments and questions? After complete revelation, though, these signs would not be needed, I'm guessing? Yeah, you don't... They, they, the, if the word's been already revealed and confirmed, then no further confirmation is necessary. Which I guess somewhat will tie into 1 Corinthians 13, maybe? Sure. This passage doesn't really comment on whether or not the signs would continue, but 1 Corinthians 13 say they won't. Once the message was confirmed, then the signs passed away. That's obvious. You know anybody who's, um, oh, picking up serpents? Well, some are trying, but that has been fatal. Uh, do you know anybody drinking any deadly poison and it doesn't hurt them? Uh, you know anybody who's uh, speaking with new tongues? They say they are, but they aren't. No. New tongues, they're called gibberish. 
Yeah, we'll do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do anybody laying their hands on the sick and them being healed in the same way that they were in the first century? No. Those things aren't happening. People allege them sometimes, but they're not happening. And so the, the signs that confirm the word have been employed, the word's been confirmed, and we now live by the confirmed message. There is a church who passes the snakes down there. There are some, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Every once in a while, it doesn't work out real well for them, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've heard of them. Do you, know what, do you know what the name of that religion is, or denomination? Or I don't think there is just one denomination. I mean, there's several small Pentecostal groups in Eastern okay. Kentucky and places I've like never that. really heard, like, a name of... But I don't know. I, I don't... I've probably mostly just independent groups. Tend to have long, drawn-out names too. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty rare thing, but it does happen. The scripture reference for the blind man. The John nine. Mm-hmm. John six. Yeah, I was like, I think I said John nine. No, you didn't. said John six. Did I say John six? Yeah, I was like, I was like. I didn't even hear you say one. Am I losing it? His numbers are all over. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking for the first part. Yeah. <laughs> right. I got to watch my numerology. <laughs> all right. Anything else on uh, Mark 16 or on Mark? You've been antiquating. <laughs> yeah, that's probably what it is. <laughs> David put an antiquitation on. It. <laughs> How? What is the? Uh, <laughs> mission of the apostles or how is that compared to ours? Well, I I mean, you know, Paul said to Timothy, the word that you've received from me, the same commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So there's sort of a chain of transmission as far as continuing to spread the message. But we don't actually, we're not revealing the message, we're just taking the message they received and continuing to spread it, and the miracles they preached, and using them as our confirmation. The miracles they so carrying that farther, I mean, they this was to them. What was their life? I mean, in their death. <laughs> you know, uh, that's not to say they didn't do other things that we know. know of. But I'm just trying to see how that compared or how we, what we should read into that or, or, or not. Well, I think we, what I said, you know, in terms of, we read that it's the will of God for the message to be spread. God wants the message to be spread. You know, now we don't have it by direct revelation, we have it by what they taught. But he it's wants easy, the message to be spread. It's easy to look at that and say, you know, we have examples where they went in the community and, you know, and, and taught people or, or preached or whatever, well, that's because they were the apostles and they were, you know, they had the responsibility of, of spreading that and, and doing that. It's, you know, we don't have that same responsibility. In other words, you, you see what I'm saying, how that... Yes, I do. I mean, when people say that, they are biblically inaccurate. I mean, I would look at a passage like Acts 8, where the persecution that arose with the uh, stoning of Stephen 
caused in verse 1, Acts 8, 1, they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem, the others were scattered, and in verse 4, therefore, those who had been scattered, that would be people who weren't apostles, went about preaching the word. So what you see in, in the model we have in the New Testament is that non-apostles, they went about preaching the word. And, you know, I would say even a passage like Matthew 28, where it says to make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So if God commanded the apostles to preach to all creation, and they teach us to do the same thing, then we ought to continue to perpetuate that concept. I was just going to say, in Mark 4, it talks about other were, that were around him, and with the twelve, that there was others around Jesus, I guess, and they would have, I know they weren't commissioned like the apostles, but I assume they would have went out and taught just as much. Yes. As well. And you have the 11 here that this is specifically talking to but then there was um, Matthias <coughs> who was added who wasn't one of these 11 standing here right then and there who would have also had this same responsibility because he was an apostle so. other thoughts How many years have we been on Mark? But uh, we'll uh, transition ourselves over.